Pentagon is getting ready to publish new guidance that could offer some help to contractors who say they've been squeezed by inflation. DOD is looking to give its contracting officers more latitude to reimburse contractors who have had to absorb the full brunt of increasing prices and wages. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, it's an update to an earlier DOD inflation policy that critics say didn't go far enough. The update is in the final review stages and should be published in the next week. One main focus will be on offering relief to companies who signed firm fixed price contracts with the government before inflation started becoming a problem. Dr. Bill LaPlante is the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. Most suppliers um, to primes or anybody else or with the government, they're on FFP-type contracts. Well, if you're in an FFP contract that was signed in 2020, it gotta, it's got to suck when it's 2022 with an inflation rate of 10 11 percent. That's what I'm worried about. We want to keep our industrial base whole. We want to keep them uh, solvent. We need them. We need the industrial base. That's what we're after. LaPlante speaking this week at a conference hosted by Defense News. The department published an initial set of inflation guidance on May 25th. Vendor groups have critiqued the policy for not going far enough. That guidance from DOD's Office of Defense Pricing and Contracting told contracting officers not to accept what are known as requests for equitable price adjustments, or EPAs, for contracts that have already been signed. It also didn't exactly endorse their use in new contracts. Since then, defense industry associations have been making the case to Congress and DOD leaders that the sudden onset of high inflation is an unusual case that calls for a departure from usual contracting practices. LaPlante says he and other senior defense officials have found many of their arguments persuasive. So what we've been doing since then is looking at several things. One, what can we loosen or broaden the definition of what an EPA clause could be used for, including for firm fixed price? And can we use what's called extraordinary circumstances in some cases? Can we use that definition to to make people whole? And then the second is, what are novel legislative proposals and ideas to address this? Um, One thing I've actually had a team do is go back and look at at, uh, Katrina. Some of our shipyards were really schwacked in Katrina, and it took about two years, but we were able to make them whole after that. Because this is not a typical inflation thing. This is something different. I think um, we're not at the answer yet, but we need to get there. And there is at least anecdotal evidence that the defense industrial base had already been shrinking before inflation became a concern, according to Gabe Camarillo, the undersecretary of the Army. He says the possibility of a shrinking supply base is especially worrisome amongst small businesses. And what I asked of our team was to look at uh, maybe doing some more in-depth analysis to say, what are these trends? Do we see it uh, on the services side, on R&D uh, you know, facilities and maintenance, you know, what are the, the market areas where we're seeing the biggest decline? And also wanted to focus on what are the causes for some of that decline? Are these small businesses simply, you know, not doing business with the Army uh, or with the department? Are they going to commercial uh, customers? Or are they hidden to us because they're doing more teaming or being bought out uh, by other larger companies? I think some forensics are in order, uh, and we're doing some analysis right now to look at it with some FFRDCs, uh, and so I hope to get the results of that later this year. David Berto, the president of the Professional Services Council, says an update to DOD's price adjustment policies would be more than welcome, but even if it happens, there's another wrinkle. The money's got to come from somewhere. That's one reason his association and others have been making their case to Congress as well. Since the government is almost sure to start off the fiscal year under a continuing resolution, Berto argues lawmakers should build additional funding into that short-term measure to account for increasing inflation. We acknowledge that in recent past, CRs have tended to be flat. In other words, 
the continuing resolution just extends the funding of the previous fiscal year's appropriations. Um, but that was when, you know, federal funds rate was a quarter of a percent and inflation was not that much higher. Uh, we're in different circumstances today, and we think that Congress could look at what it did in the past in these circumstances, and that would be to appropriate a level in a continuing resolution that would be perhaps uh, bounded by the lower of the already marked up bills that would be in, in place. So for DOD, for instance, and actually for all of the federal government, that would be the, the uh, bills enacted by the House on the appropriation side that reflected the president's budget request rather than just the straightforward FY22 extension. Julia Gledhill with the Project on Government Oversight's Center for Defense Information says there could be a reasonable case for allowing economic price adjustments for smaller firms, but her group is wary of any potential policy changes that could become a bailout for the broader defense industry. I think that anyone in defense policy knows that this summer we saw record stock buybacks from a lot of these defense companies, and I think that that reflects a level of financial stability that does insulate them from from these types of fluctuations um, in inflation and you know supply chain issues. So while it certainly does matter to ensure that they are able to continue meeting those subcontracting goals, um, I think that there's more accountability measures to be kind of enforced uh, on the part of the Pentagon and Congress and making sure that they're meeting those those goals. But Berto argues expanding the number of instances where DOD can grant requests for equitable adjustments is far from a blank check for the government contracting industry. He says in each case, vendors would have to show evidence that inflation has forced them to absorb costs that weren't foreseeable when they agreed to fixed price contracts. This is the beauty of administrative action through requests for equitable adjustment, because a request for equitable adjustment is not an invoice that gets paid. It's a submission of justification for a change in the amount of money that's being paid. That submission is subject to documentation requirements. It's reviewed by the federal government. And so basically, you wouldn't grant uh, additional funding under an REA unless there was substantial justification and actual costs that have been incurred or that you could demonstrate would be incurred if you continued doing work under the contract. And so um, the, by having the combination of administrative action to open the aperture to receive these requests and Congress providing the funds necessary to cover the request once they're reviewed and approved, this would be a tremendous a way to answer your question that only those who deserved it would be able to get it. LaPlante says more data is going to be vital, not just for adjudicating individual contract adjustments, but for broader policymaking in an economy where inflation has suddenly become a major factor. We need data and we need examples, real examples to show back to us and to the Congress that this is real and it's really hurting companies. It's my personal belief that it's happening, but I want data to show it. I've challenged industry on that. How do you respond to the fact you're buying back your stock? You know, and, the answer, and they have answers for that, but, um, but I think that that is the perception. The other point, I, I, I will say this, uh, having been in the, in the national security community before I got into this job, it turned out during COVID, one of the best places to be was to be, have a contract with the U.S. government, okay? It was better than being a hotel, better being a restaurant, better being an airline. The U.S. government, particularly national security, because of the imperative of what we do, we tried our best to make it whole. Now, having said all that, industry did incredible work to sacrifice themselves to keep the production lines going. So um, I think those are all part. It's a holistic discussion. But the, real, the realism is, is that we can't have these suppliers who aren't FFPs 
go under or go out, get away from us. And that's what I'm trying to prevent. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.